Did you know the New Testament contains seven very personal letters that were written by Jesus to seven churches located in modern-day Turkey? And did you know those letters are relevant to us today? For more information, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope. I'm Dave Reagan, founder and director of Lamb and Lion Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our program, Christ in Prophecy. I'm delighted to have with me this week two of my dearest colleagues who are experts in Bible prophecy and who are going to help me to interpret and apply the seven church letters of Revelation. They are Dennis Pollock, who is the founder and director of Spirit of Grace Ministries in McKinney, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. And the other is Don McGee, who is the founder and director of Crown and Sickle Ministries in Amite, Louisiana. That's sort of a suburb of of, uh, Baton Rouge, although it's way out there in the country. It is. Okay. Well, thanks for joining me, fellas. It's good to have you back. Good to be here. Thanks. Great to be with you. This is our third program in a series on the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. These are letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John when Jesus returned to this earth 65 years after his death, burial, and resurrection. In our first program, we presented an overview of all seven letters, focusing on 13 promises the letters contain for those who are classified as overcomers. And we saw that an overcomer is defined as a person who has placed his faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Last week, we took a look at the Isle of Patmos where the letters were written and we discussed the first letter, the one to the church in Ephesus. This week, we're going to take a look at two more of the letters, the ones written to the churches at Smyrna and Pergamum. Smyrna was located 35 miles north of Ephesus on the western shore of modern-day Turkey, an area that was called Asia Minor in biblical times. Today, Smyrna is the modern city of Izmir. Izmir is a major port city with a population in excess of 3 million people. There is nothing left of the ancient city of Smyrna because the modern city has been built right on top of it. The only ancient ruins that can be seen are what is left of a Roman marketplace that dates back to the 2nd century A.D., The population of Smyrna at the time Jesus wrote to the church uh, is estimated to have been about 200,000. The city has a superb natural harbor that made it an important commercial center rivaling Ephesus. It had celebrated schools of science and medicine and was known for its magnificent public buildings. It had the largest theater in all of Asia Minor. Mount Pegasus, which towers above the harbor, had an acropolis built on it that was considered to be the city's crown. Today... It is the location of a castle fortress that was built by Alexander the Great. Smyrna was filled with temples to many pagan gods, and there was one of the it was one of the centers of the cult worship of the emperor. There was also a large Jewish population that actively opposed Christianity. The result was Roman persecution combined with Jewish harassment, producing an environment of acute suffering for Christians. The most interesting place to visit in modern-day Izmir is the Church of St. Polycarp. It was built by the Anglicans in 1625 to honor the man who served as bishop of the Smyrna Church from about 105 A.D. to 155. His name was Polycarp. He was the disciple of the Apostle John. 
He was burned at the stake when he was 86 years old. And when he was asked to denounce Jesus while tied to the stake, he responded, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he's done me no wrong. How can I speak evil of my king who saved me? Polycarp's martyrdom was a manifestation of the severe persecution the church at Smyrna was suffering when Jesus wrote his letter to them. Let's go to that letter now. And Dennis, would you read it for us? Okay, well, we're reading from the second chapter of Revelation. In uh, verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who is dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, how would you characterize this letter in general? Well, it's got some positives and negatives. One of the most positive things is that there is no criticism by Jesus yes. of the church. There's only one other church in the in uh, that category. And nowhere does he tell them to repent, which he does to five of the church. Side with relief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the negative side is he says, right. "I know some things." One of the things he knows is they've got tribulation. They've got a lot of persecution going on and poverty. And and I think Walver pointed out that the word poverty means abject poverty. These mm -hmm. were not just slightly poor people. They were in desperate straits of just in terms of material goods. And then not only is their situation bad, but it's apparently going to get worse because he says you're going to be persecuted for 10 days. And of course, there's a little difference of opinion whether those yeah. are 10 literal days or not. But uh, in the midst of it all, he says, I know it. He says, be faithful and I'll give you the crown of life. So all in all, it's very positive. But in spite of the fact they have problems, Jesus does not promise immediate deliverance. Okay. What about verse 10, where, I mean verse 9, where it says uh, that he is concerned about the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. Now, not, what, what, who are Jews and are not? What is that talking about? Uh, it could be that they were uh, much like their ancient um, uh, uh, forefathers who, when they got to Canaan, became affected by paganism. And though they had Abraham's blood going through their bodies, they had no faith that Abraham had. They were Jews by nature, but were not really Jews by religion and conviction. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. What else? Uh, anything else you want to add to that? I, I know this is kind of a mysterious thing, uh, and, and people have to guess and speculate at what it is, but you have anything to add to that? Well, history tells us there was a large number, there were a large number of Jews that were very hostile toward uh, Christianity in, um, in the Smyrna region. And uh, it may be that Jesus was simply saying, you know, they, they are literal Jews, but they are not true Jews because they are opposing, you know, what God is doing. Right. Uh, one, one verse that came to my mind is over in Galatians chapter yes. 6 and verse 12, where it says, uh, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Yeah. In other words, they get circumcised and they say, hey, well, you know, I'm really a Jew, uh, even though they are a, uh, are a Christian. 
And it could be that. I, I don't know for sure. One is not only outwardly a Jew, but must be one inwardly. Yes. You see. So uh, it, it's, it's a rather mysterious statement here, but evidently there was some real problem going on there with, with the Jewish people and, and the church. Whether they were within the church or outside the church, we know that there was some harassment outside the church. Now, Jesus promises that if they remain faithful under persecution, they will receive the crown of life and they shall not be hurt by, by the second death. What is the crown of life? What is the second death? The crown of life is not a diadem or a regal crown for a sovereign. It, the, the word there simply means a, a uh, victor's crown. There are two different words there, as most of us understand. Uh, the one word for victor's crown and quite another word for a sovereign's crown. Uh, we are not going to be kings, but we're going to be victors. And the crown that we receive will be that of, a, of one uh, like an athlete who competes and wins in a race. The, um, the second death, uh, I believe, has to do with the lake of fire. In Revelation 20:14, we see that. And it presupposes the first death, which I believe to be the, the personal sin that separates us from God, according to Ephesians uh, 2.1. So we have a, a death that re- results in our separation from God here as a result of our sin, which is a form of death, separation. And then we have the eternal separation in the lake of fire. Okay, Dennis, you have any comments about the, the crown of life or the second death? Well, we we covered that in another program to some degree about yeah, the Yeah, but they the may not have death, been watching so. in that program, so let's do it for this program, okay? <laughs> okay, well, Don did a good job, too. So just to, just to add to that, uh, the second death uh, it was actually used by Jewish rabbis, and, and Christ picked up uh, apparently a phrase that was common and, and used it uh, here. And it indicates, as in Revelation 20 describes, uh, the, the lake of fire, this, this uh, casting people into the lake of fire. And, you know, a lot of times uh, people are mixed up about hell. And, and we often think, uh, I know one guy talked about some buddies of his that, that were not Christians and they died. And he said, yeah, they're crackling and popping in hell right now. <laughs> Well, that's colorful language, you know. It's kind of interesting to think about. But the truth is there's nobody crackling and popping in hell right now because uh, the white throne judgment has not occurred. Nobody's in the lake of fire right now. If you could go and visit there, you'd find it empty because there will first be a judgment and then the sinners will be cast into the lake of fire, which the Bible declares is the second death. Beast and false prophet will be the first two occupants. Yes. Well, uh, you know, uh, in talking about this, uh, one thing that comes to mind, uh, it, it, it seems to me what Jesus is saying here, you know, you've got two alternatives. You can either receive the crown of life or you can receive uh, the second death. Mm-hmm. It's going to be one or the other. Life or death. Uh, God deals with sin in one of two ways, grace or wrath. And every person watching this program right now and all of us in this studio are under either the grace of God or we're under the wrath of God. God must deal with sin. He deals with sin in those two ways, grace or wrath. And... Um, there's not uh, the the idea that many people have of God is the cosmic teddy bear who's big and soft and warm and furry, and when you stand before him, he's going to wink at you and say, "Well, I know you never accepted my son, and I know that uh, you were a boozer and a woman chaser and all that, but you were a whole lot better, you know, than the fellow that lived down the street from you." And uh, God doesn't grade on the curve; He grades on the cross. That's right. It's mm-hmm. going to be grace or it's going to be wrath, one of the two. So He's talking about either the crown of life or the second yeah. death. That's not the first time we come across the crown of life. Over in James one in verse twelve, it says, "Blessed is a man." who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Mm -hmm. There's going to be degrees of reward uh, as we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, but it seems to me like the crown of life is probably uh, simply the the, the crown for those who endured testing, uh, the crown uh, that came through uh, successful in their time of testing, but there's going to be a crown of life that's going to be a special reward. For those who have never received Jesus, it's going to be the second death. It's going to be eternal separation from God. So it's one or the other. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, that, that brings us to the heart of the gospel, which is 
receiving the grace of God are living under the wrath of God. And, and the reason that's significant is that, that so many churches are departing from that and they're presenting Jesus as just kind of a good buddy to help you know make your life a little nicer. But the gospel is not about Jesus becoming your good buddy, although he'll do that for sure. I mean, he's a great friend. Yeah. But the heart of the gospel is grace or wrath, righteousness or condemnation, and through the cross we can receive righteousness. But that's righteousness not a popular message. It is not a message you hear in many churches today because it's not a popular message. It's a message that makes people squirm in the seats. It's not a seeker-friendly message, right? Well, this whole section that we're reading, really, you, Jesus was not very seeker-sensitive well, here. These uh, uh, yeah. very, he's talking about repenting and he's talking about all kinds of things he hates. And I mean, I was talking like, one time about the <laughs> wrath of God and, and a guy just jumped all over me. What do you mean the wrath of God? That's Old Testament. New Testament, it's all yeah. grace. It's all love. It's all fuzzy. It's all warm. I said, hey, have you read the New Testament? Let me read you a statement here that Jesus makes. He makes to the church at Thyatira. He says, if you don't get your act together, he says, I'm going to cast you up on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with this woman in this church who's causing problems will go into great tribulation. I will kill their children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches the minds. So many get, they forget about the justice aspect of God. Everybody wants, everybody wants to talk about His love and grace and mercy, all this huggy, touchy, kissy, feely stuff. And there's a place for that yes. stuff. But the soul that sins will die. Sin no. must be punished. Now, either it's going to be Jesus that takes the punishment or you. You've got a choice. That's right. And when, people, you, when all you do is present the kind of Jesus you're talking about, you really are blaspheming the blood. Yeah. Well, you know, I saw a track a guy handed me one time, and I, I, I thought, you know, this is neat. This guy's going out passing out tracks. So I looked at the track. The whole thing was, Jesus wants to be your friend. Invite him into your life, and he'll be your friend. It said nothing about the cross. I mean, the cross was not mentioned. Nothing about sin. Nothing about imputed righteousness. It was just, you need a friend. Jesus will be your friend. I thought, that's not the gospel. Well, there you go. Well, folks, I'd, I'd like to conclude our consideration of the letter to Smyrna. Uh, with an observation about Polycarp. Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John before he became the bishop of the church in Ephesus. One of his students, in turn, was a man by the name of Arrhenius, who became the bishop of the church in Lyon, France. In the year 180 A.D., Arrhenius wrote that the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, quote, toward the end of Domitian's reign. Now, that's a very important statement. Why? Why is that important? Because the persecution of the Christians was worldwide. Yes. John was on Patmos because of it. And because it directly counters the modern-day fad of preterism, which says the book of Revelation the was written date. before 70 A.D. Mm -hmm. yeah. That whole system of thought depends upon the book of Revelation written before 70 A.D. And here is a man who was taught by one of the disciples of the Apostle John himself and says, hey, I know when this book was written. It was written in 95 A.D. during the reign of Domitian. I don't know how you could get anything clearer than you that. You cannot emphasize that to it much. Yeah. In a moment, folks, we're going to consider the letter to the church at Pergamum. But first, let's pause for a message about some Revelation study resources that I think will be helpful to you. Revelation Revealed is a dynamic 75-minute overview of the book of Revelation. On this informative DVD, Dr. David Reagan provides a very clear chapter-by-chapter -chapter explanation of the truth found in this wonderful and often overlooked portion of God's Word. The masterful teaching of Dr. David Reagan, illustrations of Pat Marvinko Smith, and logical charts will help you understand Revelation like never before. You can order Revelation Revealed for a gift of $15 or more by calling 1-800-225-7977 or visiting lamblion.com. And when you place your order today, we'll also send you a copy of Dr. Reagan's book, America the Beautiful. Just call and ask for offer number 330 or visit us at lamblion.com. 
Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy. This week we are discussing two of the seven letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos in 95 A.D. And I'm being assisted by two colleagues here, Dennis Pollock of Spirit of Grace Ministries and Don McGee of Crown and Sickle Ministries. Now, wait a minute, Dave. You forgot to say we were experts. I like it when you call us experts. Okay. Experts. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't like it. Like experts? <laughs> I don't know. You can contact these ministries at the website locations you see on the screen right now. Please take a moment to find these websites and send a message through them to request that you be put on the mailing list for these ministries. In fact, I want to emphasize that. You look into the camera and give them your website okay. address. Well, it's real simple. It's the name of our ministry, Spirit of Grace, and then you add .org, spiritofgrace.org. Okay, and Don, yours? www.crownandsickle.com. And is that sickle spelled with a L-E or an S-I-C-K-L-E. Not crown and sickly, crownandsickle.com. Well, we're going to turn our attention next to the letter Jesus wrote to the church at Pergamum. Now, folks, Pergamum is located about 60 miles north of Ephesus. The ruins of Pergamum are located near the modern town of Bergama, which has a population of about 70,000 people. The site of Pergamum, like Ephesus, contains some very spectacular ancient ruins. Equally spectacular is the site of the city, on top of a steep hill towering a thousand feet above the surrounding countryside, creating a natural fortress. The city's incredible theater is perched on the side of the steep hill, and its size indicates a city of about 150,000 people in the first century A.D. Pergamum was a governmental city, the capital of the province. It was also a culturally sophisticated city with a library of over 200,000 volumes, second only to the library in Alexandria, Egypt. The city was also a center of emperor worship. One ancient historian remarked that it was a city addicted to idolatry. It was considered to be the birthplace of Zeus, who in turn was considered to be the father of all Greek gods. This is probably the reason Jesus refers to it in his letter to the church there as the seat of Satan. In the valley below the city, there was a world-famous medical center known as the Asclepion. The Asclepion, I'll get that right. It was the first health spa and the first to provide treatments for both physical and mental ailments. Asclepion was the workplace of Hippocrates, the father of medicine. He was a man who taught that many illnesses were rooted in spiritual problems. Don, how about reading this letter to us, the letter to uh, Pergamum? The angel of the church in Pergamum wrote, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Okay, now this is a rather lengthy letter here that he's writing to Pergamum. You know, that's just, this is exciting to me. It's like reading somebody else's mail. It's like getting an email message from God. It's, it's really exciting to me to read these letters and to see how much they, they apply to us today. What is your overall impression of this particular letter, Don? What would you like to share with us? Well, again, the first thing that he says is that I know. 
And I believe that's, very, that's very, very important. It's important to the people who are reading this, knowing that God, the great God of heaven, knew what was going on in their personal lives and also in their congregation. And that same can be applied to us. It's, I find it very interesting that he addresses uh, Satan's throne here. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, he goes on and says, I have some things against you also. Okay. Uh, Dennis, you want to make any responses to the letter in general before we get to some particulars? Well... Uh, you know, just picking up on what Don said about, it, I know one of the the, the things that you see uh, through all these, and they're all so similar. I mean, uh, they're the same form, although he yes. has different things to say. But one of the things he says to every church is, "I know your works. I know what you're doing." And you know, all of us understand that we're saved by grace. We understand that we're not saved by works. But it doesn't mean that works are not significant in the eyes of God and in the eyes of Christ. And he's looking at these churches and saying, I know what you're doing. Sometimes that means it's a good thing. Sometimes it means he's not very pleased. But he definitely is concerned about what churches and what Christians are doing. In our first program in this series, when I gave my introductory overview, I made the point that the church was under tremendous persecution at this time. All over the Roman Empire, people were being required to come and drop a piece of incense in a fire and say Caesar was Lord, and only Christians wouldn't do that. And so Christians were being terribly, terribly persecuted, fed the lions, crucified right and left. Uh, it must have been a time when the church was really on the ropes, and people probably began to wonder, you know, uh, does the Lord know what's going on here? I mean, uh, did Jesus really mean it when he said, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it? Think how this must have impacted the church. Hey, I'm here. I know what's going on. I'm walking among you. I, I can even give you detailed information about your congregation. Some of you probably don't want in writing. Yeah. But I know I'm not distant. I'm not aloof. Yeah. I'm not, uh, you know, millions of miles. I'm not sitting on some throne just looking around. I am here walking among you. I know what. This has got to be a source of encouragement Absolutely. even under persecution. Yeah. When, when you are suffering the most is when you need to know more clearly than at any other time in your life that God is intimately aware right. of what's going on. Well, he mentions here something very interesting. He says, one of the problems with this church is the teaching of Balaam. Now, what in the world is that? Who's Balaam, first of all, and what's it all about? Now, Balaam was someone who had tried to influence the uh, Israelites to leave the worship of God and to be involved in idolatry. And Dennis could probably say a few things about that in just a moment. But uh, this is something that we have even today. The church is being influenced by the things around us. We, uh, we're not impervious to those things around us. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit do we uh, overcome those things. But it has to do with idolatry and its seduction. You know, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who God, uh, uh, who was who was hired to prophesy against the children of Israel. Every time he opened his mouth, he spoke a blessing. He couldn't do it. He just yeah. couldn't do it. He kept speaking blessing after blessing. But then he finally, as I remember it, uh, encouraged them to uh, get the children of Israel involved in sexual immorality and that this would destroy them. What do you know about Balaam and, and what this is talking well, about here? Well, the story of Balaam is fascinating. We could, t we could take a couple of programs and just talk well, about Well, I imagine you could <laughs> preach a sermon, especially about that donkey. Yeah, the donkey. <laughs> but uh, Balaam was offered a lot of money and a lot of a lot of, of blessings, prestige, whatever, by the king of Moab, whose yeah. name was Balaam. He said, if you will come and put a curse on these guys, I will make your, you'll be set for life. And he tried. I mean, <laughs> give him credit. He tried. He would open his mouth, hoping to, you know, come on first, and it just wouldn't happen. And, and finally, he's about to lose everything. I mean, he, he had the chance to make all this money and, be, and just be rich in our terms, a millionaire or whatever. And he's about to lose it. And he thinks, ah, you know what? 
He says, hey, Balak, here's what. I can't curse these guys directly, but what I can tell you is this. I can give you a plan that will lead to their downfall. What you do is you get your best-looking gals out there, not these old hags, but the good-looking ones with the great figures. Let them seduce these young Israelite males, get them involved in idolatry, and they'll fall as a result of their own sin. Everyone's going to be turning into Bibles right now <laughs> to catch this story. I was story. about to say that I've read that story a hundred times that there was as interesting as what he told it right now. Everyone's going to be looking at Balaam now, Dennis. I think this is sort of the modern version. Well, it. maybe it's a little bit to paraphrase, but it's something pretty close to that. And the point Jesus is making is you've got people like that now that are encouraging sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is something God has taken a very strong stand against. Right. He says you do that, you don't go to heaven if you practice that. Now, you can be forgiven for an initial act, but, but at any rate, Jesus says you've got people in the church encouraging this. And he said that is something I just hate. Okay, now in verse 15, he mentions another problem in this church. It's one we've run across before. In the letter to Ephesus, which we discussed in a previous program, he makes the same uh, criticism. He says, you have some who are involved in the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, Don, refresh our memories. Uh, what, what is that all about? Anytime you have a group of people, someone in that group will usually try to gain authority over it. And the same is true for the religious community and even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicolaitans, as far as we can tell, were uh, those people who tried to uh, uh, control the, the members of the congregations in a tyrannical way. Uh, they were, the, uh, they were the, the clergy and everybody else was the laity and the laity had to be in subjection to the clergy no matter what. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're talking about a radical change here from New, Old Testament times to New Testament. O, Old Testament times, uh, it seemed all of religion was focused uh, in priests and what priests did. And suddenly the New Testament says, we're all priests. There, you know, we all are. There that, are no uh, distinctions. Yeah. There is no clergy. We don't have to go through a priest to pray to God. Right. We, uh, we're all priests uh, who are who are born again members of the Lord's body. But there were some who could not accept that. And instead, they wanted to have a priesthood within the church. Yeah. 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 Anything to add to that? Okay, then let's uh, consider the uh, next verse. In verse uh, 17, he talks about um, uh, some uh, promises to overcomers, these wonderful promises. Uh, in one of our previous programs, we pointed out that in these seven letters, there are 13 glorious promises that are made to overcomers. Uh, and in this particular one, he talks about you'll be given some of the hidden manna and you'll be given a white stone with a name written on it. What about that? Any comments about that for the maybe people viewing for the first John time? John 6. Go to John 6. Okay. Jesus is the hidden manna in John 6. He mm -hmm. is. He is. Uh, be given some of the hidden manna. Wow. Uh, 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 that could even mean fellowship, uh, intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be yeah. right there with Him. We're going to see the face of God. We're going to have intimacy with Jesus and His glorified body. Absolutely. I can hardly wait. It's beyond my comprehension, but it's a promise. Right? right. Okay. All right. Uh, what is the message of this letter for you and me and our viewers today? What, what are we to learn from this message? Overcome. That's it. Overcome. <laughs> and that's the goal. Overcoming. And, and Jesus the is key. the overcomer. He is the in one. In his strength and that's power, right. we can that's overcome. Right. But only we in his strength and power. We have nothing in ourselves to cause us to be overcomers. But by faith in Christ, we are guaranteed to be overcomers. Dennis, uh, why don't you look directly into that camera in front of you and you talk about uh, what is an overcomer and how can one become an overcomer? The truth is there is something to overcome in this life. You know, there are famous people that sometimes get death threats. Some, someone will send them a note and say, I'm going to kill you. There's a death threat against you. It comes from the devil, from demons, from this world's culture, even from your own flesh that is trying to drag you down to destruction. 
and separate you from God forever. And you will have to overcome this incredible pressure, this pull before you die or you'll be lost forever. Now, the truth is, you don't have it in you to overcome these tremendous currents that are attempting to drag you down. Neither do I. None of us do. But there is one who overcame. His name is Jesus Christ. And he says, if you will put your faith in me, I will not only forgive your sin, I'll give you a brand new nature and you will overcome this world. The Bible says this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. By a simple act of faith in Christ, you can be forgiven, born again, and can overcome all these currents of evil that are trying to drag you down. Thank you, Dennis. Well, folks, that's our time for this week. Next week, the Lord willing, we'll take a look at the letters to the churches at Thyatira and Sardis. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 